Welcome to episode three of Coral's Soapbox. Good morning, Coral. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, people in Australia. Good morning. Well, we don't know when you're actually going to do a show this. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. That's another day shot to pieces. That sounds like from the Truman movie. Remember the Truman movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, what's on the what's on the soapbox this morning? What's on the soapbox this morning? Well, I thought we'd look because we did look at the top dogs, although um, we didn't cover Nora, which is true. But um, who wants to talk about Nora? We'll talk about Nora when we talk about the Barnhurst Five. Yes. Um, I did want to say something though about stories forty years ago and how reality catches up. Um, I know that you have uh, pointed out the Lassa fever thing and pandemics and things, but it's very disturbing here in Australia. And I know that it is in Britain as well, where most of our fans are. There are people who now would be better off in jail because at least they would have a roof over their heads and they would have three square meals a day how western countries which let's face it we really are wealthy we're wealthy countries can have people sleeping on the streets and this is brought about by me realizing that um, there is a lady living in her car in the car park of my local Aldi and I sit with a little dog and I think, you know, how have we come to this? I mean, in Prisoner, we had a halfway house so that when people left the prison, they had a way of assimilating back into society before they got jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But at least they had somewhere to go and a roof over their heads. And there have been several disturbing reports this week on the news or well, last week on the news about people who've actually got the money but they just can't get anywhere to rent they've got the money to pay for a bond and uh, to pay rent but there isn't enough property i mean how short-sighted of us to not allow for that and so we have people living in their cars. Uh, I don't know what you think, but I think that's it is just disgusting. And we should, our politicians should all be ashamed of themselves, quite frankly, for allowing things to get to this state. Mm -hmm. When you would be better off in prison because you get three meals a day and a bed to sleep in, there's something very, very wrong with a society like that. Uh, and that's my soapbox moment for this well, morning. But can I, can, I, can I add Sorry, to that? Well, you're speaking of politicians there. So uh, an age pensioner, right, receives $25,000 per year, which is roughly $500 to $520 a week. Yeah. A retired politician receives between $188,000 to $220,000 a week, uh, a year, which is roughly about $4,500 a week. Tony, as an example, so Tony Abbott, who's retired, is on $296,000 a year. That is just... And we have 290,000 homeless people <clears throat> in Australia. And it was said in 2016 that the pension fund for retired politicians was costing taxpayers $40 million a year. 
So that is just that. I mean, that is outrageous. Let me tell you, um, at my peak, I earned a lot of money, um, yep. but I am not, I'm a creative. What do we know about money? God, you know, I, I never did my tax returns. So then they caught me for a lot of that. I gave it away because, you know, it's not about money when you're a creative. But are you still, but getting, the same, are you still getting the same wage now as what you got when you were working? No, I mean, I, I was making, I think in my best year, I made, um, I made slightly more than a quarter of a million in my best year, which would be the equivalent of, uh, well, I suppose now 30 odd years later would be the equivalent of a couple of million. Um, never saved any, never had any superannuation. Um, live on the married pension. Now, the married pension is um, 740 for a couple, $740 a week for a couple. Um, it's not easy. We own our house. If we didn't own our house, we could be with four cats. No, but it's awful that we have all these homeless peoples, but you have these politicians that don't work and are still getting... I know, it's outrageous. And some of them get more money for not working than they did when they were working. You know, I mean, they did just very little work for what they got their money for, and now they're getting it for doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. So um, it, it's a very strange world that we live in. Um, but we don't, I always say to people who um, are writers or performers or whatever, um, when they say we're not paid enough to live on, uh, particularly for a writer, unless, and that is, that is why um, so many of us move in-house to script produce or story edit because it's a regular wage and when we're bringing up children that's you know you have to have a regular wage but uh, I also say on the other side nobody holds a gun to your head and says be an actor be yeah. a writer be an artist be a musician you do it hopefully because that's what you're meant to do. In the case of writers, it's because we have things to say, hopefully. But and don't, don't you find that's hard? Though? I, I, I had this discussion a while ago with a cast member. I, I can't remember who it was, but they said they love acting, but it's so, you know, you could be acting one week and then you don't hear anything for six weeks. So how do you go and get a job, a normal well, job? Well, you can't. You can't. Well, you for auditions. And you can't. I mean, I was talking yesterday. Uh, I went to see a play, which I am reviewing for Stage Whispers for all those people who are in Australia. Well, even those who aren't in Australia, Stage Whispers is international. And um, you can find it on Facebook or on the net. But um, she's someone who worked in a show that I wrote some 35 <laughs> years ago or more, 37 years ago. And... Um, she was saying, uh, I'm giving it, I've still got an agent, but I'm giving it away. I said, well, I gave it away a, a while ago. And she said, I'm just sick to death of my agent calling me and saying, you've got a, you've got a call, you, you know, you've got a call back for maybe a, a, a four line role in a movie. Uh, take some samples of uh, wardrobe with you. And she said, you get in the car with four or five lots of, 
clothing with you because you've got to supply your own wardrobe mm. and you go all the way to um, wherever it is for a four-line part, which is going to pay you a couple of hundred dollars. And at the end of that, they say, thank you, but no thank you. Um, and it's outrageous because it's actually encouraging people to say, oh, bugger this, I'll just draw the pension. Uh, I mean, not people like myself, I did the wrong thing. I didn't save any money, but I helped a few people along the way. And I've got one friend who says, remember, my patio is you, belongs to you because she wanted to put a patio on her house and she didn't have the money. So I, and I did at the time. So I said, oh, look, I'll give, give you a few thousand, put a patio on. But, but I'm a great, I'm also a great believer in pay it forward. I absolutely, for anyone who hasn't actually seen that film and doesn't understand the concept, you should see it. It's a classic. Um, and the idea of pay it forward is that you do something for someone, not expecting anything in return, and somewhere down the track, someone else will do something for you. Now, so far, I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but I still believe in it. I still believe that, you know, we're not just here to grab whatever we can out of uh, anybody we can grab it from. I mean, you should hear me with scammers on the phone. You know, when you have that recorded <laughs> message which says your MBN is about to be cut off, press yeah. one to continue. I press one to get through to a person yeah. and the person oh, answers <laughs> MBN and I say, you disgusting piece of filth. What would your parents say if they knew you were ripping off old age pensioners? Go and get a proper job. This is disgraceful. I get you ringing me four or five times a day. Go away. Well, I actually don't say that. I say fuck off. But, you know, that says, you know, that's, that's more likely to be me. So... But the world is in a, a sad, sad state. And part of the reason is that we don't care about each other as much as we care about ourselves. And that's a little bit sad. I'm not suggesting that everybody should, um, you know, go without themselves in order to give to other people. But I am saying that if you have enough, yeah. of course, for some people, enough is never enough. If you have enough, you should spread it. You know, money is like manure. It's no good unless you spread it around. So, you know, nothing grows from keeping it in a bank account. Then it's just a load of figures on, on the bottom of a bank statement. But if you can actually help someone with it, well, that's great. And when you think about bringing it back to what we're supposed to be talking about, prisoner, when you think about... Um, you automatically put someone like, uh, look at this for a segue, uh, you, you automatically put someone like Ruth Ballinger on the baddie side because she really did not give a shit about anybody yeah. else but the money, the money, the money, the money and what the money buys. Whereas someone like Judy Bryant was a caring, giving person yeah. who, you know, never really had a penny to her name, and which is why we gave her that fairy tale ending of going off on tour because she wrote the song, which seems really silly to some people. But I always say that um, a cynic is just a disillusioned idealist. 
and somewhere along the way those people who cynically say oh as if that as if they've been idealists but they've had the idealism knocked out of them by what life has presented to them and it's hard to believe in ideals if they're being stomped on by everyone around you, including your own government. And that is true of the government in Australia, though we are hoping for a change. We've just recently had a change of government. We're hoping for a change. Um, in England, I don't know what you do because it's it's like choosing between, you know, cancer and leprosy over there. I mean, you know, <laughs> who on earth do you elect? You know, it's, it's, it's a hard, hard call, but we should not live in a world where people have to consider prison as an option for getting a roof over their head and three meals a day, no matter how badly they're cooked. So, in your, uh, but our subject today is, in fact, nasties, is it not? Well, we're doing the Edna Pearson story. Oh, well, there's a nasty for Did you. Did you say she's okay, a nasty? So we're, we're not sure. No, we are sure. Of course, we're bloody sure. We're not <laughs> sure about the other person, yes. but we are sure about Edna Pearson. Yes. We know Edna yes. Pearson is a baddie, and we know that she tried to poison her husband. Now, there are people who still have not. I believe that the full, some years, 20, 25 years down the track, the full Edna Pearson story was released on a seven disc yes, set. Not version. So they got to see the whole lot. But for the people who haven't seen that and who have only seen the cut up versions that went to air, um, the, the whole story is very confusing. Yes. So here's the, I have, I have explained the story before, but I will explain it again. And I have to say that I, I have to take full responsibility for this because I did not realize it at the time, but I did have time to change it and I didn't. I just said, oh, sod it, it works, let it go. If the story works, you don't mess around with it. So back in around 1983-84, there was a case in the news here of a woman being arrested for allegedly trying to poison her husband. And we her must say was, allegedly here. <laughs> yes, we have to say allegedly here. We have to. For allegedly trying to poison her husband. And... <clears throat> I thought it was a really interesting uh, story. Here was my mistake because I, I, it was some weeks later that I went and put the story into prisoner. Here was my mistake. I didn't realize that I had been, uh, I knew I'd read a story somewhere about a woman allegedly poisoning her husband. But I went and called the character Emily Perry I, no, I went and called her e, Edna Pearson, yeah. which is the same initials as Emily Perry. So, in now, a for, the, for, the, way, for the fans, Emily Perry is the person that Emily Perry life. is the lady who was charged. Yes, I didn't realize, I, I didn't take any real notice of her name, but it obviously stuck at a side, you know. Um, subconscious level because I called her by the same initials. Now, our story in the prison had this woman come in on remand 
uh, ostensibly, allegedly, for trying to poison her husband. And her husband, who thought they were deeply in love and she would never do any such thing, um, comes to visit her and says, no, she didn't do it, she's innocent. And certain prisoners believed she was innocent. But then she let something slip to Marlene. And Marlene, it just went straight over Marlene's head. So Marlene could never have used it against her. But Edna Pearson was worried that what she said to Marlene was pretty much a confession that she did try to, to kill her husband. And so she decided that she had to get rid of Marlene. Now, the, uh, as it happened at the time, because people would have said, oh, there's, uh, you know, how would she get poisoned and what would she do, raid them? And that was brought up in the, in the room. And as it happened, and here's where little bits of one story cross with another little bit of another story and make up a whole. As it happened, I'd had someone in to do some gardening at my house, which was up in the Dandenongs in Melbourne. Oh, you lived in the Dandenongs? And I lived in the Dandenongs, oh, wow. yeah. I'm a, okay. I'm, a, I'm a Hills girl. I love I'm the a Hills girl. My children went to Mombok uh, mm. State School okay. uh, to start with. So I lived in Mombok. I lived in uh, Fernie Creek. Right. I lived in Upway. I lived in Belgrave South. I'm a Hills right. person for okay. all the Melbourne people. And if I went back, I'd still probably want to go back to the Hills. I love the Hills. Wow. But the, this gardener said to me, haven't you got young kids and dogs? And I said, yes, why? And he said, well, you've got oleander bushes in the garden. And I said, well, they, they're pretty. What's wrong? And he said, you know, they're deadly. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, they're deadly. The, you know, in, in the sap that's in the leaves and the stalk, the flowers aren't deadly, but the leaves and the, and the stalks are absolutely deadly if anyone chews on them. And if I had young kids and dogs and I wouldn't have oleander in my garden. And I thought, ping, here's a story because you may not be able to bring poison into the prison uh, uh, and it may be a far stretch that they'd leave rat poison or something in easy reach but there could always be an oleander bush and and the authorities being unaware as i was that oleander can be deadly yeah <clears throat> and so we had i think she made two attempts i think she did the tea or well, three attempts she made tea from this is the character Edna Pearson. This is not the woman who Emily Perry, who allegedly yes. tried to poison her husband. So she tried to poison Marlene before Marlene could have a chance to uh, tell what she'd heard, which Marlene didn't even know what it was that she'd heard in the first place. But Edna, having a guilty conscience, conscience thought, oh, holy shit, I've given myself away. So she tried to poison Marlene with tea made from oleander leaves, um, with a branch from the oleander uh, when they were having a barbecue outside, and by putting the sap in barley water on another occasion. Mm. So the story was meant to go, <coughs> but we had to drop the end of it. 
that um, Marlene got really ill and nearly died. And um, then uh, they realized she'd been poisoned, but the doctors didn't know what she'd been poisoned with. And somehow, I can't remember how now, it's 40 years, but somehow they pinned it to the oleander trick and to Edna Pearson. Now, we had shot, pardon me, the first couple of episodes, because I think she only ended up being, she should have been in for something like 13 or 14 episodes, but by the time they chopped it around, I think she was in for barely seven, and she, she made so few appearances and there was so little of the story that people thought, well, what's that character doing there? It all leads to nothing. But it was quite a major story. And it was, remember we talked, uh, oh, a couple of months ago now, about how stories are either driven by the main characters or you have a guest character come in and impose the story and what you're watching is the, is our main characters react to what's happening. Yep. Well, that was one of the latter stories. And the next thing we know, I have Ridge Watson on the phone to me saying, uh, what have you done? this time virtually what have you done this time and it turned out that Emily Perry who allegedly had uh, poisoned her husband had seen the first episode and had seen Edna Pearson Emily Perry charged with poisoning her husband husband doesn't think she did it now, by that stage, we had filmed well over half the story, well over half, and the rest was scripted. And it was, oh, my God. So they threatened to sue. Her lawyers threatened to sue. Um, we were then told legally that if the whole of that story went to air, it would be impossible for her to get a fair trial because a television show had virtually told her story and said it was true. I mean, bear in mind, Emily Perry wasn't in prison. She yeah. wasn't <clears throat> accused of using Oleander. So there were substantial differences, but there also were substantial similarities. And I, I have to confess, I based it on her story. I didn't realise I was going so close to the knuckle by using the same initials. Mm. So what happened was I am told, though I'm not sure they've ever... Um, publicly admitted it that money changed hands there was a settlement in order for her not to sue oh they said yeah grandia i am told this now i have no way of knowing because it certainly didn't come out of my pocket but i am i was told by reg watson we settled um which means that there was an agreed amount of money that was given to her as compensation and we agreed to remove anything in the story which might prejudice her trial now in point of fact she was 
uh, found not guilty because it wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt and because there had been this speculation in the press uh, uh, about the prisoner's story, etc., etc. Um, only for there to be evidence come out later that her first husband or partner had also died of poisoning. Well, so can we... I don't know what the status quo is with Emily Perry now. Is she in prison or out of no. prison? Or... And can we bring up, can we talk about Emily just for a few minutes? Because I thought. Yes, I of course, as long as we say allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. And everything we're going to talk about here is just stuff that is available to read on yes yeah it's on the files. net etc so yeah, anyone can look it up you or me so if you're really interested in the that edna pearson story look up emily perry, emily perry on the net and read all the background of how it came to be but quite clearly within prisoner in the show she was guilty of poisoning her husband and she tried to kill inmates that well, not everyone loved her, but a lot of people loved her. A lot of people loved Marlene. So, you know, that she was a baddie. She was a nasty in the show. And the real person whom she was loosely based on took umbrage at that, as you would, and, um, you know, threatened to sue Grundy's. And I am told from an extremely reliable source that Grundy's had to make a cash settlement and we had to heavily edit the story so that it um, ended up making very little sense to people who only saw what ended, what was left after it ended up on the cutting room floor, after it was edited out. You want to talk about Emily? I'd love to hear this. Go on. Yeah, and, we, and we'll come back to Prisoner as well. But Emily Perry, they, they said it was one of South Australia's most bizarre cases. That's where she lived. And yeah. she'd been classed as the Black Widow. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and her husband passed away of natural causes in uh, 2014. But, yeah, as you said, her first husband, who was a police detective, passed away in 1961 of similar circumstances, but never proven. And also her brother, who passed away of the exact same circumstances, um, but apparently suffered an overdose, but had traces of arsenic in his uh, in his system. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> apparently it was all about life insurance, allegedly about life insurance policies. And then she uh, obviously, when she got charged with the 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 one that you read, the case that yeah. you read was uh, she appealed to the high court to say that she didn't poison her husband, and her husband supported that evidence. Yeah, and the four justices on the High Court appeal released her. Um, but the detective that arrested her is on record saying, "100 percent, she was guilty because all the evidence." Oh yeah. Trial, oh yeah. But where they... the thing is that what wasn't known so much at the time, you've got to remember, this is forty odd years ago. Yeah. Um, the best way, if you're going to use arsenic, because arsenic stays in your system, you do. slowly so if you were to go and give someone little bits of arsenic in their food over months 
it would kill them eventually, but it wouldn't be one large overdose that killed them. It would be little tiny bits eating away at their bones, etc. Yeah. And and um, he had been unwell for quite some time, but he refused to accept that she um, could possibly poison him. And we in fact had her husband come to visit her in the prison and say, you know, it will, I don't know if that scene remained in the chopped about version, but he actually gives her the idea about the oleander. He comes to visit her and says to her virtually what my gardener said to me, gee, they ought to get rid of that plant. It's dangerous. Oleander is poisonous. And um, so we took the stand that our character, Edna Pearson, was an out-and-out murderer and would have happily murdered people um, in the prison if she could have got away with it. But, um, you know, the whole, it's, uh, I still think it was valid for us to do the story, but it wasn't valid for me to call her Edna Pearson. Uh, You know, if I'd called her by some other name, we could have rightly claimed, or we could have claimed, not rightly, but we could have claimed, we don't know anything about your story, this is a separate story entirely. And much as I hate to admit it, being a woman, but women murder their husbands all the poison their husbands all the time for insurance. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of cases where women have murdered their husbands to get the life insurance. The problem was that we named her by the same initials. So well, that's where it brought it up. There's the initials. Yeah, wow. that, it was the initials. It was the initials that, that really gave her a legitimate claim to say, um, those are my initials and people are going to make the jump, Emily Perry, Edna Pearson, and I won't be able to get a fair trial, blah de blah de blah blah If we called her, you know, Madge Ryan or something like that from Neighbours, yeah. uh, we, we would have been okay. But for some reason, or maybe I just wanted to say, die in hell, you bitch. I don't know. But on a subconscious level, I picked EP as her initials, and they were Emily Perry's initials. And that was enough for her to have a legitimate claim that our story would, in fact, damage her right to a... Fair trial. Well, I have, um, a, I have a question for you about that. So, yeah, I want to ask you because I ask a lot of people this question. So, that case is actually back in the news at the moment with the Chris Dawson trial. So, they're saying yeah. similar fact evidence, they're calling it. And that was what got her off. That was the problem with the prosecution in her case in the 80s, was there was similar yeah. fact evidence. The prosecution brought up things from her past that they weren't allowed to. So yeah. that's how she won her appeal. Now it's yeah. and now they're referring to the Emily Perry case all these years later in the Chris Dawson case. Now, let's say you're on the jury. You're a jury member. I've never been on the jury. You're Me neither. <laughs> but how can you, let's say you've heard something that you should know in a court. You can't case. unhear it. You, you can't. can't. How do the you judge says it? the judge says disregard that yes. evidence. How do you? you? Can't. Because it's in your mind. You can't. Um, And that's where the jury system falls down. So it doesn't matter if 
um, either side brings in evidence which they know is going to be thrown out, yes. it doesn't matter because once the jury has heard it, it's there. They can't throw it out, uh, and and that's where the jury system, and it's the best system that we've got, um, falls down because it relies on twelve ordinary people saying, no, I didn't hear that, no, I didn't hear that, of course I bloody heard it, no, I didn't hear that, I'm not allowed to take that, but of course I can, you know, if I were ever to be on trial for uh, murder, which, you know, could happen if my husband doesn't clean the kitty litter boxes, for example. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Um, I would ask to be tried by a judge alone because a oh, judge really? would go... Yeah, because a judge would go by the letter of the law. Oh, Has yeah. this been proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Has that person, has the prosecution proven this beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, whereas if I had 12 people there, they might not like the shape of my face. They may, may not like my forthrightness as some prisoner fans don't and that's you know that's absolutely their right you can't change who you are just because you're sitting on a jury if you're a person that says I don't like that person in the dock and I don't believe a word they say and now the prosecution has told me that she tried to kill her <laughs> other husband of course you're going to believe it of course, of course, yeah. you, that is going to stick in your mind. But a judge is trained not to believe that. Um, There's a case recently, I uh, can't remember what it was, but where the judge said, I have to find the defendant um, not guilty because the prosecution has not proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And it was clear that the judge thought the person was guilty and was reluctant. But the law says the prosecution must wow. prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. So all you've got to do in the defence is raise reasonable doubt, which is why in so many television courtroom dramas you see the defence lawyer say, so you were in the house as well, were you? You never told us that, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I put to you that this could be the murderer sitting right here. It's just to raise doubt. They don't really think the other person is guilty, but it's just to raise doubt. But what I am fascinated by is the fact that Emily Perry had the balls to come after us. Yes. <clears throat> That's amazing. When, when in all likelihood, um, she, and I say in all likelihood because she was eventually re um, released yep. and uh, her, her conviction was overturned. She so I have to months. say that in all likelihood, she did poison her husband. But before she even went to trial, she had the balls to come after us, <laughs> or her lawyers did. Um, and, you know, more power to her, more power but, but to her. But you as a creative, you're always, you know, you, you read the news, you read different things, and you think, geez, that... Look, the, the thing is, and it's not an excuse, Matt, but the thing is that when you are a creative, you often don't know where your stories come from. You really don't know where they come from. And... Um, 
you know, it's why I often say, like, for example, people have said, oh, as if they would put men even in the even in the isolation uh, block, yeah. solitary confinement, as if they would put men in a women's prison. Well, they did. They did. In America, they had a fire in the men's prison. They had to transfer the men to wherever they could get them to. And I think it was more than three. I think it was about a dozen ended up in the isolation, the solitary confinement wing of a woman's oh, prison. That's why. Okay. So they did. So truth is often stranger than fiction. Someone said recently that they thought the scared straight story was stupid, you know, fancy bringing in kids to a prison in order to yeah, scare I read, them. Straight. I read that, yeah. Yeah, well, they did. And if you look it up, you'll find the scared straight program has been running for about 45 years in America. It was relatively new yeah. at the time. And what they were proposing was that it would be a great deterrent for teenage offenders. So we put three teenagers in for, I think they were only there for a day yeah. or two days. But the truth is stranger than fiction. Whereas there are stories that were not true that came totally from my mind, which people never, ever doubted. So um, there's a famous screenwriter called William Goldman, and uh, he said in one of his books that what is real isn't necessarily true, and what is true is not necessarily real. So he said, if you, for example, he says, he draws the, the differences between the Rambo films and, and Bambi. Oh. And he says, which is the cartoon? And he argues that the cartoon is Rambo. Here is this guy with all these guns just going around shooting everybody all over the place, whereas um, Bambi is real life. It's about, you know, family. It's about losing your mother. It's about That's trying true. to find your way when, you don't, when you're a kid and you don't know anything. And he also uses the example of there's a famous war movie called A Bridge Too Far in which um, the Americans virtually saved this whole village by blocking off this bridge and, you know, putting troops on it and firing on the, all the German tanks as they come across and everything. Well, in the film, it's not, that's not how it happened. It's, it's a fictional account of what yeah. happened. But you believe it because it looks real. real. Whereas, I think it was the same year the film came out, a man somehow got over the wall of Buckingham Palace, broke into the palace without anybody stopping him, and the Queen woke up to find him sitting on the end of her bed. Oh, wow. Now, that is true, <clears throat> but you don't believe it because it's not real. You think, oh, how could he do that? How could, uh, how could, how could anybody do that? Hang on, I've hit something and lost the, the film. So let me try and get the film back again. Where the bloody hell has that gone? I've now got a magic quadrant for United Unified Communications. So how do I get rid of that? And how do I go back to? Can you still see me, Matt? 
Yeah, you're still there. I can still hear you. I am still here. Oh, well, then I'll, I'll keep talking anyway, because okay. uh, because um, your meeting has been launched. Don't see your Zoom meeting? Click launch meeting. Okay. Hi, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. I'm, I, I, I stuck my hand on my mouse, and it's a Bluetooth mouse. So, oh, okay. Uh, you know, so there's a wounded, wounded mouse. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes things that are real are not true. Things that seem real are not true. And sometimes things that are actually true are not believable. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the mix up when you're a creative of telling stories is that, I mean, the story that I got um, a Writers Guild Award for Best Script for was a story in which um, Alf Stewart dies on the operating table and he goes towards the light and he um, encounters, uh, what was her name? Was Elsa. Elsa, he encounters Elsa and she says, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to die for another 25 years. And he says, oh, I've had it, you know, don't want to know. And the whole story was about her showing him why he had to go back and live. Now, we know that that story is not real. But the way we played it, it was true. Yeah. And it was so true that I got fan letters from people saying, oh, we lost our daughter and we lost all faith and we didn't believe in God anymore. And when we saw that story, we started thinking, well, there obviously there's thousands of people who've come back and said they've seen the light and, you know, they experienced something. So, you know, we choose to believe this is real. Um, but that came from you know any number of stories plus the um what tony calls the convoluted mind of coral ruin <laughs> <laughs> well well speaking speaking of your mind i mean that episode 463 when we see edna come in for the first time i mean there was so much going on like myra was on the run helping her daughter with wally out in the bush getting yeah yeah mari who i just think was the best, Mari Winter was was top dog, you know, getting yeah. the, drugs, the drugs happening. Bobby had lost her baby. Yeah. Uh, Meg was being held kidnapped. It was you know, hostage in a. Yeah. Um, Joan was trying to get rid of Anne. She'd gone to the department and and a big list of things that Anne had done wrong. I mean, there was just it was happening, and and Edna was in. <laughs> well, let it be said that. Um... That was a period in the mid 400s where leading up to 500, where I was probably at my most fertile in storytelling. And I had like stories coming out of my ears. Wow. I could not deal with how many stories were coming through. Now, I always claim, and this is where people will either think I'm a wanker or a weirdo, <laughs> uh, or both. <laughs> I always claim, and I say to young writers, you know, honour the gift. It's a gift. There are people who can write and there are storytellers. There are a lot of better writers than I am. Um, but I'd be right up there with the storytellers, right up there. Not just in Australia, but 
pay anywhere um, because it's a different thing. Telling stories is a different thing. And at that particular point, I was at my high point. I was comfortable with the show. I had taken over around about 300, but we still had a lot of the old ethos of the show. A lot of the old characters and a lot of the old ideas were still hanging around. And it wasn't until really around 400 that I truly felt the show was mine and uh, I just ran with it. And I mean, really, Grundy's yeah. had said to me, run with it. What you want, don't, put, don't pass stories past us. <laughs> because up until that point, if I'd had a story, I would ask them. I would say, I want to do a story about such and such. And they would say, you know, sometimes they'd have a gut reaction and say, um, ooh, no, I don't think so. Um, and I was loath to push too hard because I had fought very, very hard to get that story editor credit, which had not ever been given on an Australian show before. I mean, story editor then became script producer and script producer became showrunner. Uh, and now the showrunner virtually can order anybody out of the room, doesn't matter who they are, say, piss off, this is my room, I run this show, and, and everything stops with them. So if the director says, I don't really want to do that, it's tough shit, we'll get another director. You're here to shoot the script. You don't want to shoot the script, which I have approved and passed on, um, then, you know, we'll get another director. Now, I had fought, I didn't even know what it was, but I knew it was more important than head storyliner, which was what I was before that. And I'd seen it on American shows. So I looked up what it was and it was, you know, basically the person who was in charge of what stories make it into the show. And uh, ergo, I took that to mean who created those stories. Um, and so through the 300s, I was still a little bit rocky and I still had to contend with people who had been there since episode one, who were saying, I'm not doing that or that's not the way it goes or whatever. From 400 through to 500, I think that's my best 100 episodes, even though I did from 300 or before 300 right through to 598 or whatever it was. Um, I, I think that 400 to 500 are my best episodes, not the best episodes necessarily, but my best episodes. Mm -hmm. And I was really, really firing with stories, which is why the episodes were so full. But always I was more interested in the why than the what. I was always more interested in why does somebody do this? You don't do anything for no reason whatsoever. So either you're a psychopath and you can say, honestly, I don't know, in which case I don't know either as the writer, um, or there's a reason. And sometimes the reason is a damn good reason. And, you know, you can actually feel sorry for the person at the same time as you think what a disgusting person you are. Um, when I hit um, four, 500 and whatever, late 400s, when was The Beast? When was, when was Bed Baker? 
Oh, Bev was, um, I'll look it up. Early 500s? I think so. Uh, give me one minute. Keep talking while you're, uh, okay. while I'm researching. So when we came, as we were coming towards 500, my personal life was falling apart. And um, 470, tell... 472, she first appeared and... Okay, all right. So towards the late 400s, my personal life was starting to fall apart. I had, um, a diff as most mothers and teenage daughters do, I had a difficult relationship with my youngest daughter who actually played Lisa Snell in the, uh, in the Scared Straight story. Um, and I had an even more difficult relationship with my partner at the time, Tony Druin, who you will see briefly. I think it must be on, um, he must have been playing for Margot, I think, because he played guitar when the women went to do a concert at the, at the um, oh, Men's yeah. Prison. Um, so I'm thinking he must have played for her. Um, not because we were um, not a loving couple, we were, but, uh, he was bipolar or manic depressive, as some people would know it as, and wouldn't take his medication. So that would be extremely hard for me, not knowing when I got home, whether he'd be in a manic phase or a deeply depressive phase. And, and the story started getting darker and darker and darker. And, and that was because I couldn't deal with it in my personal life because the show was all consuming. I mean, throughout my entire career, and I don't know whether it was the sweat that made the stories good or whether they would have been good if I'd uh, been less of a zealot about them, but I, I generally worked about an 80-hour week. Wow. I generally worked. I worked seven days a week because I worked... Um, in Grundy's doing the storylines and the stories and creating the characters from Monday till Friday. And then on the weekends, I would be writing scripts. You have to remember that um, I wrote, um, especially through to uh, the mid 500s, I wrote from when I first wrote my first script, which I think was 145, I wrote roughly one in every five scripts. Oh, wow. So. So when you realize over a period of um, uh, three, 400 episodes, I wrote 90 odd episodes of Prisoner, which means that given that it was two hours a week, I was writing a script every two and a half weeks, every two weeks. So all of my weekends were taken up writing scripts. And I just felt, and I know there will be some people who understand this and some people who won't. I felt like I was just being emptied. I felt like I was at the mercy of emotional vampires, if you like. The show was 
very, very taxing on me in that it, you know, sucked the life out of me while I was creating it. And then I would go home and I would have the life sucked out of me by a teenager who was rebellious, a partner who was loving but couldn't do anything for himself, not anything except type my scripts. He taught himself to be a touch typist and he typed up my scripts. I always wrote in longhand on prisoner because we didn't have computers yeah and i couldn't manage the the ball golf ball typewriter so i always wrote in longhand um so i went into a very very dark phase and during that dark phase we had some very dark stories um I don't know, but I suspect that Pixie's Rape came within that. I know that Bev Baker came within that. Um, I know that David Bridges came within that period. They were dark, dark stories. And I suspect that I just, my it was my way of dealing with my life, was killing off within the stories everything that was, you know, stopping me from having a life was just emptying me I you know I felt like people were just dipping in and emptying me out until there were, I would just be an empty well there would be nothing left wow. and nothing to put back in what had been taken out so we had some can we talk about nasties now now we've talked about this can we talk about nasties we've done Edna can we talk about nasties <laughs> actually just going back on Edna for a minute um oh bloody hell you're obsessed with Edna <laughs> Well, you brought her up. Don't worry, folks, if we don't get to nasties this week, this time, we bloody will next time because I want to talk about Bev and I want to talk about David Bridges and I want to talk about Angel and, and I want yes. to talk about um, archetypes in because uh, we talked last week uh, or last time about the goodies, last month about the goodies and, and what makes a top dog. So I think it's only fair, Matt, I think it's Definitely, only fair yeah. when you get Ed, Emily Perry out of your system that we talk about nasties. Okay, going back to Emily Perry. Go on. All right, so just two things on, on, on Edna. So Vivian Gray, who played her, of course, went on to play famously Mrs. Mangley, yeah. who we all love. And, yeah. um, you know, we all know Vivian moved to the UK and to, to escape uh, the, the negative feedback she was getting here, which was crazy. Um, what was it? Did you meet with Vivian? Like, what was Vivian's thoughts on when all that was happening? Um with the legal I never knew what Vivian thought. Um, I only met her the once because, as I explained before, we were in an, uh, a terrace house in Richmond yep. and or Paran, and they were out at Nunawadding at the studios. Um, at a, but I only met her once, and she actually, she at that stage, she didn't realise the negative. Um, connotations that there would be with this character or that it would come back on her but I do remember when I met her she said thank you for giving me such a meaty character did she do it because this was early days yeah and even she said um you know did she do it and I said well I'm not going to tell you that she said <laughs> and she said which is quite true I have to know whether or not she did it because it will affect uh -huh. the way I play the character and I said well in that case uh, and I agreed with her that she was the one person who had to know everyone else had to come to the realization at the same time that 
the audience came to the realization because I love it and I know that the audience loves it. Um, there are two ways to do it. Either the audience is one step ahead of the, of the people within the show or they come to the realization at the same time as the characters they're following. Now, I think that the latter is a much better way to go because if it's the former and the audience says, Oh bloody hell! She's a she's a murderer, didn't you see? Oh, for God's sake, are you stupid? Whereas if they all come to the same conclusion at the same time, then you feel a stronger connection with the people in the show, with the characters in the show. You feel like you and they are on the same level and that you know what they know and they know what you know. And so I said to Vivian, but you must not say a word to anybody. And she said, no, of course not, of course not. She's, and I said, but you did it. You will proclaim your innocence wow. all the way through um, but you know, and I know, and the story department knows, yes, you are guilty. And she, all she ever said to me was, thank you, thank you for such a meaty role, because I always get to play um, whiny women or, um, you know, snoops or gossips or those sorts of things. And bugger me, she goes into Neighbours and <laughs> what did she play? This is mangled. <laughs> but she did thank me for such a meaty role. And you know what? We'd spend almost an hour talking about so i suggest we fill in but we don't get on to the nasties and no, we we'll do, do no, we'll do the nasties in another episode because the, you know the, we'll edna, do the nasties in the pearson store the the episodes are you know they're well talked about and the, you know people call them the infamous story arcs because they you know they are uncut episodes which i did want to ask I did read somewhere that Grundy's at the time supplied, you know, because you were obviously broadcasting to different countries, but they gave the uncut versions to Malta at the time. So there was the... I've, I've heard that and I didn't know, but I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised. I do know, however, and this is why I believe the story I was told about them having to settle, that they did give the uncut versions to... Emily Perry's lawyers. Oh, really? Oh, they had to. They had to. And when they gave the money, when they gave the money, <laughs> when they gave the versions to Emily Perry's lawyers, uh, I am told that that was when the lawyers said, this has to come out, this has to come out, this has to come out, oh. this has to come out. You can't say that. You can't suggest that uh, in fact I'm not even sure if the store if the um, if the Oleander episodes were even in the cut version cut ones, or, yeah. whether, or whether the scene where the husband points out uh, that's deadly poison whether that was left in the cut version because I, I never saw it once they start chopping around stories I, I said you know it's extra work but let's take the entire story out, if that's the case, rather than do it half-heartedly. Yeah. But I do know that um, maybe it was a case that by the time it was sold to Malta, do you know the dates of when it was shown in Malta? Well, I think it was in that same year. 
It was in the same year. Yeah, that's Woo! what I, I mean. That's what I've read. I, I don't know hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I would be more inclined to think because I, I, that it was later because it was. Although it may have been, I know that before they landed Britain, before they landed the sails in in Britain, and the and the interesting thing in Britain was that they couldn't sell it to a network. They, like they couldn't sell it to ITV or they couldn't sell it to the BBC. They didn't want it. Who wanted it was all the individual stations like Anglia, like um, um, Midlands, like Time Tees. They all wanted it. So, so they actually made 10 times more money in Britain than they would have made if they'd sold it to the BBC or to ITV, then ITV would have sold it on to its to the subsidiaries. But because they sold it to individual stations, they made a lot more money out of it. And that's when I actually launched a, I never went through with it because um, I said, you know, I there were there were very strong um, copyright laws at the time coming into play at the time but our contracts with Grundy's said that you, they owned everything you created everything if I had had now if I were doing a prisoner now if I was the showrunner or uh, a, the story editor on um, prisoner now when it was being done now I would get a percentage of the earnings, oh, right. or I would get a royalty, yes. or I would get a fee for every time it's sold. I was on a salary, which was a very, very good salary. I mean, I'm trying to remember what it was because it's so long ago. It doesn't. It's not me skiting because it's not that much in these in today's terms. Um, but I think it was about $1,500 a week. We're going back 40 years, nearly 40 years. Plus, I was being paid for every sixth story. Plus, I was doing, well, as many scripts as I could handle, which were worth, at that time, about $1,800 to $2,000. And so I was making a lot of money. But if I was doing that show now, I would be making probably more, $20,000, $30,000 or more a week. Wow. Um, maybe as much as, depending on where it was sold, maybe as much as 100000 a week. And, and people often say to me, younger writers and everything say, say, often say to me, because they don't know what it was like back then, so you must have made enough money out of prisoner to just retire. And I said, no. <laughs> I made enough money out of prisoner to buy my first roof over my head, and I made enough money out of prisoner to live quite well and to help my family and people. I didn't make enough to retire, not ever. And the problem with being in-house is that you don't write necessarily the things that you want to write because you're stuck in the formula of what it was. And people don't understand this, but if you look at Neighbours or Home and Away or any other soap, um, the storytelling balances largely on the idea of so-and-so talks to so-and-so and hears something. 
then they go to so-and-so and they tell them that they've heard something. Then that person goes to the first person and says, I hear you this, 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 and this. And the first person goes back to the second person and said, that was a secret and you broke my trust and I'll never trust you again. You can't have secrets in a prison. You can't have secrets in a prison. It was the hardest show, and I still maintain that to this day. Uh, and I think it is why I love it so much because I cracked it. And, and in my mind, um, and that's not to say they weren't brilliant in their own way, but nobody else cracked it in the same way of saying, oh, shit, we can't have so-and-so doing this because that's lagging and they don't lag. Um, and, in fact, I think that... Um, the Edna Pearson story, somebody does break that rule and lag. So I think it might be Bobby that goes uh, to Anne and says, I think she's poisoned. Mar uh -huh. I think Marlene's been poisoned and it's her um, and broke the lagging, the lagging rule. But you couldn't have lagging. You couldn't have secrets. Everybody knew everything about everybody else. So you couldn't have huge surprises. So you had to be able to play off how the women interacted with each other and what their reactions were to each other, which meant that you had to get inside their psyche. You had to know what was going on in their brains. And, and there were, I once heard from a guy who in England, and I think he went to Newcastle University, and he wrote to me and he said, I've tracked you down because I am doing my PhD. Freaking PhD, I don't even have a BA, give me a break. <laughs> uh, I'm doing my PhD on prisoner, on the oh, psychological wow. effects of um, uh, incarceration on women as portrayed in mm -hmm. the um, Australian drama series Prisoner. That was a full title of his thesis. Wow. He did a thesis on Prisoner and he said what fascinated me was that during what he and a lot of academics call the Golden Age, the viewers don't call it the Golden Age, but they call that, you know, from the entrance of the freak through to 500, they call that the Golden Age. Academics and people, which, I mean, really, would you rather have the audience who's watching it every week or would you rather have a few bloody academics in um, high town saying, oh, yes, that was so psychologically interesting. But, you know, really, I'd rather have the audience. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd love it if they saw it as the golden age as well, but they don't. Um, but the, the way I cracked that show and made it work, even after B left, was by saying, what's going on in here? What is going on inside? And that allowed us to have what I call the moral dilemma of storytelling. One, on one hand, I can do this. On the other hand, I can do that, um, which comes back to things like the Hazel Kent story. Judy knows yes. if she kills Hazel, she'll go back to prison, and she doesn't want to go back to prison. But she also knows that Hazel is her friend and no one else is going to help her. So, and it's still why it's one of my top three stories, I think, of all time. Mm -hmm. That moral dilemma of which path do I choose and can I live with the consequences of what I do um, was 
all comes from what's in here. None of it comes from bashing somebody. I saw somebody say recently, I think it was on the, on the Talking Prisoner page, Matt, my favourite story was B bashing somebody. And I said, that's not a story. That's an incident. <laughs> it's not a story. What were the circumstances leading up to that? Why did she feel she had to bash that person? You know, so I was very into the psychology of those people and what made them tick. And that was true even with the nasties, but I have to say that the nasties were influenced by where I was in my life. Also at that same time, hopefully people are watching these in order. As I told you um, in, the, in our, the last time that we spoke, so in the last soapbox, because we were, we were talking about Roe versus Wade, yeah. I had had to have an abortion in the middle of all that. Um, and so everything was crowding in on me at the time. And the stories got very, very bleak and very, very dark. So when we had the stupid nonsense, like the cockroach races, it was never meant to be anything more than a relief for me because I thought, I can't keep doing this. It's getting blacker and blacker and blacker, um, you know, and ending in uh, the Ruth Ballinger stuff and Paul Myra being killed. It just was getting blacker and blacker all the time. Um, and that was because of where my state of mind was, because I approached the show from a psychological point of view. And and I reckon that we've just about, have we taken uh, up our yeah, look, No, we have. And I mean, I will say before we go, because I have taken up your time, was that, you know, it still stands up the show. And I'll, I'll say it a thousand times because I'm going back and re-watching episodes now, doing research and looking at certain things. And, you know, I got into 463 episode 463 you know the other night and it's like oh my god this 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 episode's so good and i know what's coming in you know three or four episodes yeah. there is the mari winter riot and 43 that was not even i wasn't even there then no 463 yeah, oh, 463 yeah. right, right, yeah, the right. Story. i'm just saying like when i went back to re-watch some some episodes yeah, yeah. well of course amazing. i did not create mari winter i did not she was there in the early days she was yeah. there in the 100s briefly but Bums. i did say let's get her back because i knew maggie miller i loved maggie miller right. and i thought you know we do need during this period where we had the the uh, it was very hard for a lot of people it's hard to this day 40 years later for a lot of people to accept that b died yeah. there are still fans who say b didn't die yeah, she got out back. She, she made more comebacks than elvis yes yes but she died and having put that to bed totally i thought we need somebody really really strong because I'd seen around about 4.40 or so, I must have brought in Minnie and had her with uh, with Cass. And I knew Minnie wasn't the answer. She was just, a you know, in a, a holdable pattern until we got it sorted out. And so I said, let's bring back Mari because um, she is such a shit-hot actress. But the character of Mari was the 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 character of Mari Winters was all Mari Winter was already established. So yeah. when we talked last week about what 
you need to have in a perfect top dog. You need to have compassion. You need to have humanity. You need to have a sense of responsibility. Mari didn't have any of those. <laughs> she didn't have any of those. And, you know, uh, there was no way that you could suddenly impose those things on her. Yes. I mean, you could impose the Shane story on the freak because we'd never really seen her personal life. So we didn't know if yeah. she had other sides to her. So we could invent other sides to her. But we'd only ever seen Mari in prison. And we knew she had no compassion. She had no humanity. She had no caring for the weak, uh, for the weak people there. So she was not the right material for a permanent top dog. But bloody hell, she was as an actress. Oh, yeah. Maggie Miller really took that character of Mari Winter, and she didn't just make a three-course meal. She made a bloody feast out of it. She and you know, no one was more sorry than I to see the bloody doll blowing in the wind when she escaped on the helicopter skits because it meant goodbye to the character. But boy, she was great. Have you had Maggie on? Yeah, we interviewed her, I think it was six or seven months ago. But she, you know, she remembers so much of Prisoner, even to the point of you know, her mannerisms that she made up. You know, how yeah. she was always walking around with her thumbs in the yeah, pocket yeah. and, and yeah. You know, she did all that. Um, she created she now there is a case where you know how I've been um quite heavy on the fact that um you know the the creatives create the characters the the actors interpret the characters yep. so the writers are creatives the actors are interpreters if you don't have something on the page for them they've got nothing to act what are they going to act if it's not there on the page, how are they going to interpret it? So that's why I say to people who say, oh, well, the actors are more important. The actors are important, but if there's nothing for them to work with, yeah. they're just actors. Yeah. And in the case of uh, Maggie, that was a case where there was very little on the page about Mari Winter. When she came in in the 170s or something like that, I was already writing for the show, um, but I wasn't in-house. I wasn't creating it. I was just a writer at that stage. And incidentally, I know you're speaking to our friend in England soon, so please say hi to her for me, because um, that's tomorrow night I think you're doing that. <clears throat> but Maggie worked on that character herself, and she created... In, in its entirety, all that was Mari Winter, wow. more so than any other character. I mean, Sheila, Florence, had to work hard because Sheila on Lizzie, because it was the total antithesis of who Sheila Florence was. She was a, oh, darling, very theatrical person who smoked through a long cigarette holder, and she was wonderful. And But she'd get into the character of Lizzie like that because she was say, oh, Bea, oh, don't be like that, Bea. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think I can do that. She sort of reminded me of Kenneth Williams. Do you remember Kenneth Williams in all the carry-on movies? Oh, oh no, yes. no, no. <laughs> um, but she was acting. Whereas Maggie actually created 
Mari Winter. It had a like three or four lines from memory on the character. That was it, which basically told her backstory. She's this and she's done this and she's been transferred from, and that was it. And Maggie just went to work and created one of the great, you know, oh, she's, baddies, you know, I guess. I know there's I know there's bigger characters and over the whole time period, but but yeah, Mari Winter was one of my all time. I love. She was brilliant, and she was, brilliant. and I can't claim any credit for that. Even though I wrote many of her episodes afterwards, and even though we became good friends, yeah. um, I can't claim and won't claim any credit for. Wow, she had some great one-liners. I mean, where have you got those one? Yeah, she did. <laughs> she did because I thought she's she's quick-witted. She has to be. Yeah. Um, but it was her. She was brilliant. And I would have loved to be able to say, well, all of a sudden you're going to find God and you're going to become compassionate and humane and you'll be with us till the end and then you'll make the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, if you remember, and we talked about that whole idea of what the top dog has to have, it also has to have that element of... Um, the Jesus Christ figure of sacrificing yourself yes. for all of all of the people who you are responsible for. And that's what Myra does, basically. Yeah, when yeah. Myra is shot, I mean, Myra could have gone and hid somewhere. Myra could have done a dozen things, which meant she looked after herself and stayed alive. But she didn't. She yeah. didn't. Because of the way we had constructed that character to be at heart basically a good person yeah. who'd done bad things but was a good person and who felt a sense of responsibility for everyone around her, even if it meant giving her own life to save them in the same way that Judy gave her freedom to release Hazel, Hazel in that case. So I love the whole life battle, because it is so real, people say, oh, but Prisoner was highly camp and it wasn't real. Bugger me, it was the most real show you will ever see yeah. because it was about the human condition. Exactly. And the human condition is always about the struggle between good and evil on the outside of yourself and within yourself. And what looks good isn't always good. Sometimes it's evil, and we'll talk about that in the character of Angel next yes. time. And and what's and what's what appears to be evil sometimes has redeeming qualities that are just waiting for the right opportunity to be released. So we've now done Emily Perry to death. I hope you're happy now. That's it. So what's um before we wrap up, what are we on next? What are we going to discuss? Well, next, if you ever let me, you know, you say to me, what do you want to talk about next? And I tell you, well, you and then you say, oh, about. yes, that'll be good. And then I get you. I'm going to I'm going to bitch slap you when I finally meet you, Matt. <laughs> I hope you know this. You say, oh, I'm coming up to the Gold Coast and we'll have lunch or dinner or something. The first thing I'm going to do is go. Because <laughs> you keep coming up with interesting questions. And we all know, as somebody pointed out, I can't even run to time. <laughs> on when we're doing a five-minute trailer, it runs ten minutes something. So we're going to do the baddies. We're going baddies. to talk about what drives the baddies and what ones are just nasty people okay. and what ones are psychopaths 
and, and why they are who they are. So we'll talk about, we've done Emily Perry now. So we'll talk about Bev Baker and we'll talk about um, Angel Adams and we'll talk about David Bridges and we'll talk about Ruth Ballinger and we'll talk about what drove them, how I came to create them. Uh, and please, people, I love getting your questions, but it wouldn't be fair for me to try to dissect characters that other people have created. Um, I'm only prepared to talk about, even though, you know, or else with a writer like I had nothing to do with, with Mari Winter's creation, but I can really only talk in depth about my stories and my characters. And God almighty, there's over a hundred of them if you count the little ones as well. Yes. And then hopefully the week after that, we might talk about another show or the, or the month yes. after that, we might talk about another show. Now, I have to tell people that because I didn't love them as much, my memories on my other shows are not as keen as my memories are on Prisoner. Prisoner was, even though it was a <laughs> Prisoner I adopted, let's say it wasn't my baby, but I adopted Prisoner when she was a young child and I stayed with her until I felt she was old enough to stand on her own two feet. So Prisoner is like my child. The other shows, even though I came to love them in their own way, were jobs. I do have a lot of non-prisoner related questions for you. I mean, I've got... Oh, great. Well, then let's I've do got the nasties. So many things to talk about with you on Let's knock shows. over the nasties next time yeah. we talk. Nasties. And then we'll move on to some other shows. But my memory on them we'll is always come back not as good as it is on Prisoner. I mean, it, it surprises even me that I have almost total recall on Prisoner. You do, yes. And it's 40-odd years ago. But I have very little memory of some of the other shows. But we do have but a lot I'm to happy... talk about with Prisoner. We've got the, the, the Barnhurst Five. We've got the Terrorist Seed. Oh, the... Well, we're going to do a whole episode on the Barnhurst Five, yes. aren't we? Yes. But I thought that people might enjoy it if a couple down the track we talk about other shows. Sure. And we'll just yeah. do... We just do maybe one um, soapbox about the shows collectively. So about Arcade, which I wasn't a writer on, but I was there from the beginning. Um, and we'll talk about Pacific Drive and we'll talk about Blue Healers and we'll talk about Home and Away in general way of what I brought to them. Um, and then if, if the fans of those shows want us to go into any further depth, we can do that down the track because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've made a vow to live till I'm 100. Okay. And I'm still not quite 78. So we've got 22 years of doing this every month. <laughs> and can I say on behalf of the fans, they really appreciate, and I do appreciate you, you know, speaking to them on our Facebook page and, and, and the YouTube channel. You know, they look, love I, look, can I say on behalf of me and only me, but I'm sure others would feel the same. Um, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It is the thing. I mean, it's a bit sad when the thing you are best known for and you'll go take to your grave is a show that is 40 years old. But I don't think there's ever been another show in history. I mean, Coronation Street is still running and that's 60 odd years down the track. Uh -huh. And that's astonishing. But Prisoner finished almost 40 years ago now. 
It finished. Yeah. And a lot of the fans weren't even born then. And, it's had a and the fact that there are people who love it, um, and, and in particular the British fans even more so than the Australian fans, I don't think we fully appreciated what we had at the time. But the British fans in particular, in fact, I was talking this week to Brian Williams, Dr Wiseman, and also a writer of some 20-odd scripts, as he pointed out to me. And he said the British fans are amazing. They eat, sleep, drink, yeah. prisoner, and they watch it. And when they finish watching it, they go back to the beginning and they watch it all over again to see if they can spot something yes, that one, they... One fan said he's watched it, the whole entirety like 22 times or something he messaged me about. And, and the interesting thing is that they see things at... 14th viewing that they didn't see at first or second or third viewing. And so they come up with some other question, which nobody in the history of the world would have seen had they not watched it 22 times. So I'm enormously grateful to the British fans yeah. um, for the way that they love and adore this show, even if they are a little obsessive about it and have very clear ideas of, um, you know, why it should have been this way and not that way. I'm also interested when actors tell you why they think the ratings went down. You know, I saw you said that. We were broadcasters one and she talked about why the ratings went down in the latter episodes. And I thought, I'm fascinated to know why actors think the ratings go down. The ratings go down simply because people aren't watching. That's why, and that means that they're not connecting with the stories and the characters in the way that they were. That's the only reason ratings go down. And that, you know, you can't pin that on any one thing. It's a combination of things. So it's not due to... Um, I mean, the ratings actually, round about the Marlene's wedding time, uh, the ratings were through the roof. Actually, the that, ratings were I do want to talk to you about ratings as well uh, at another time. But, yeah, ratings, how it all worked, how, how you know, back, because I know now, obviously, with the streaming platforms, they've got all the, you know, the most downloaded yep. shows, they know what works. But back yep. in the 80s and 70s, you know, you had a rating system, which I... I you had a rating was... system, which put a bot, which um, in the very beginning, okay, I was determined I was going to stick to an hour. No, no, we'll, <laughs> get, we'll, no, we'll talk about it next time. It, it was, it, okay, it, you want to talk about it next time? Yeah, we'll talk about okay. it next time. It's on my list. So, right, and, so and inside that's... the writer's room. Yes, yes. We'll yes. do all of that and more. So keep watching people. Yes. Eventually, you're going to run out of people <laughs> to interview, but he'll always have little news. There we go. That was episode three of Coral Soapbox. Yeah. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share this interview everywhere you can. And please also like our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And this episode will be available across all the podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcasts from and the talkingprisoner.com website. It's been an honor again. Until next time. Bye. See you next time, guys. Enjoy your day. Mm -hmm.